All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode two of Heartland Revival. Happy to be back for a second episode. I got a great guest here with me tonight, a fiery, energetic truck driver, the greatest truck driver that ever walked the face of the planet, Mike Lombard. Before we get into it, uh, I want to apologize for a little bit of delay, but the reality is Mike's a blue collar guy. He's on the road. He's got breakdowns. I got long days at work, so we kind of took our time getting this back together, but I'm real excited for our conversation today. And so I don't think I'm going to drag on here. I think I'm going to let Mike introduce himself and, and tell us his story. What's up, man? I appreciate the introduction. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I do apologize for those delays, dude. It's It's been a rough week. You know, I got a load originating out of Laredo and I've just had some trailer tire troubles and some problems on the customer service end. And yeah, it's just been I had to drive like 50 miles with a blown tire and kind of limp it along. But we're, we're here now. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Um, I really appreciate you having having me on. I, I'm a big I, I love the title of the show. Number one, I just want to say that Heart, Heartland Revival, like that's that's what it's all about. And that's that's what we need, because I mean, if the Heartland can revive, that's only spreads to the rest of the country. So I'm glad to be here. A little bit about me. Uh, born and raised Connecticut, um, born in Waterbury. I grew up in uh, I grew up in a town called Wolcott. Uh, which is named after Oliver Wolkett, who was uh, somebody who signed the Declaration of Independence, for a little fun fact. Um, but I went to high school. I went to Catholic high school in Waterbury, uh, Holy Cross High School. Uh, I was a swimmer there growing up. You know, I was captain of my swim team. Did a couple, did a little bit of theater there. Uh, so I, I dabbled in the arts a bit. I graduated high school in 2008, joined the Marine Corps. Um, I joined the Marine Corps for specific reasons. You know, some people joined 9-11, um, I, I always like to reiterate the, of why I joined was the sole reason of not wanting to go to college. And this has to do with kind of our whole conversation today. Like I did not want to go to a conventional school, like growing up, th those were the only real options set in front of you. Essentially like my parents and everybody in society is like, it's either you go to college or like, you know, you don't live at home and they kind of make it the, the be all end all of that's the only way to go. Of you, this, is, this is what you deserve. It's how you're going to get ahead in life. I didn't want to do that. Um, because it frightened me. I remember looking at things like the cost and I was like, this is an absolute fucking rip off. And so I, I, I luckily had a, I found a way out, you know, a kid who graduated high school a year before me, him and I crossed paths at a Wendy's on Wolcott road in Waterbury. And he walked in with, you know, in his blues with his recruiter, they talked to me and it, it was a done deal. I, I called the next day and, um, cause it, it was my way out, my way out of going to college. I was in the Marine Corps for four years. Uh, I was an artillery guy, fire direction control, uh, which is kind of the nuts and bolts behind how uh, indirect fire gets their firing data. Uh, deployed overseas to Afghanistan, one combat tour. I was there from November 2010 to May 2011. Um, I got to do my job overseas and provide um, artillery fire for infantry units, you know, conducting ground operations. Very proud to have been able to do my job uh, overseas. It's something not a lot of artillery guys got to do especially when the Iraq war started to die down, the use of uh, field artillery wasn't used that much because of collateral damage. But luckily we were given an artillery mission. It was great. We did a lot of good work over there. Um, you know, sa saved a lot of lives as well as, you know, take, take some of the enemies. Um, so really proud of that. But then uh, I, I got back from Afghanistan. I went to a water survival instructor school. I was motivated to stay in uh, really in hindsight, if I wasn't 22, if I only had maybe a couple of years ahead of me, I probably would have stayed in, but, you know, from outside influence, I, I got out in 2012, 
Uh, wish I wish I stayed in, saw the career out, but you know, what can you do? I'm not going to live in the past on that. I got out in 2012, eventually did go to college, but only because I had GI benefits and I went to school. Um, I played lacrosse there. Uh, I was in the college of business. I got, I got a business degree, played lacrosse, was in a fraternity there. Um, had a good time, you know, did, did a lot to kind of keep, like I said, playing, playing lacrosse and being in a fraternity was kind of the bandaid I needed uh, for getting out of the Marines. And then, you know, after I graduated college, it's like kind of when it really reality started to set in. I, I worked for two years at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Um, it was, you know, it was pretty miserable, uh, kind of like parts of the military. I met a lot of good friends there, but overall the job was pretty unfulfilling. Uh, it doesn't give you a big purpose. And then I ended up getting a job at uh, plumbing and heating wholesaler uh, called FW Web. Uh, they, you know, they're uh, out of the Northeast. Uh, good job with them. Learned a lot. That kind of got me into the logistics side of things and kind of a little bit more on the blue collar side of work, seeing that side, meeting guys in the trade. And then um, kind of came to a little bit of a crossroads. Uh, you know, uh, I, I was offered a promotion. A negotiated salary didn't go my way. Um, and it, it, this was right before I was getting married in 2019. And um, it so got back from our honeymoon. You know, my wife and I were kind of talking because we're, we got future on our mind and you know, can't really afford a house in the Northeast and things aren't going well in my career. I'm not feeling fulfilled. Um, and this kind of leads to who I am and what my name is on the bottom of the screen. We, we had made the decision to move to Central Texas and I wanted to change careers. Now, um, so a little bit about, you know, I kind of always wanted to get my CDL at one point in college. I remember saying to friends like, hey, let's get it over the summer. Maybe we can make side money with it. And it's just I was always inherently talked out of it. I remember always talking to my dad about it. Um, and he's like, you don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. You know, um, you know, because my grandfather drove for what was the original lumbar trucking. And and so my family used to own a company that was a, a motor carrier that incorporated in 1923. It started with a horse and carriage in Waterbury, Connecticut, um, moving luggage for people who immigrated to the United States. They used to move blocks of ice to the Litchfield Hills. It became one of the largest motor carriers in the Northeast. Uh, you know, they were a Teamster affiliate. It was a union gig. Uh, guys would spend 30 years there, had pensions. Um, unfortunately, after deregulation, they kind of limped on and, and the company was sold in 1984. So I can never relish in it. And even my own grandfather said, you don't want to do it. They, the industry's changed. You don't want to do it. But in 2019, 2020, I was reinvigorated to, to do it. Um, when I negotiated for that salary at that last job, it's when I really started to recognize what I'm worth, um, that I'm worth more than a resume. Um, I'm worth more than anything. I can do things. It's it's not too late, even though I was, I'm, you know, I was crossing 30 years old. I regained a lot of confidence in, in who I am and saying, you know what, if not now, when? And I was like, I'm just going to take the leap because you, you can change your career at any time. You know, who really cares? At the end of the day, I had a, I have a good family, a good support system, a wife who supports me. I said, I'm going to make the jump and go all in. And so that's what, you know, kind of got me to get, get my CDL and walk me into, you know, where I'm at today. I got my CDL in 2020, started driving. I was a company guy for, for two years. And then I, I got my own truck and I'm trying to, uh, you know, restore kind of, uh, you know, my family's business. So, you know, I have my own truck now. I'm, I'm leased on as a contractor. So I'm not a carrier yet, so to speak. I don't have my DOT authority, but I, I do operate a small business. Um, it's going fairly well, but at this point, I'm just trying to survive and hopefully build something uh, one day that, you know, where I can hopefully have a business similar to my family's and kind of do it, you know, do it for that legacy and that honor to give people good jobs and a purpose to be proud of. I know that was a whole lot. And I didn't know if you wanted to interject at all, but that's a 
best way I could sum it up in a, in a short amount of time. That's, that's my story. I think there's a lot I want to pick out of that. There's a lot of questions I want to ask you. So I'm curious about the old version one of Lombard trucking. Um, you said you were starting, they started by, by moving freight and goods around for people immigrating to America. I mean, what, when did they get here and, and how did they get into something like that? Do you know any of that? Yeah. So, um, and I'm going off the top of my head. I do have uh, some written down, uh, you know, literature about this. There's actually a book about Italian families from Waterbury that I've gotten able to, that I've been able to get some of this information as well as other family members and, and old employees of the company. But, um, you know, my family came over here as technically they were the Lombardos, um, when they came from Italy, right about the turn of the century. Um, I know that. So my grandfather's grandfather was actually born in, in Naples, uh, grew up in Caserta, uh, right outside Naples. Uh, but his brother, John, uh, was born in Connecticut at the time. So they already got here by the time that he was born. And when they did get here, uh, you know, they, you know, they didn't really speak the language that much, but there was, uh, you know, there was heavy immigration going on. They, you know, they were able to work at a young age, I, I believe. Uh, they were, they were once fired for, from one of their first jobs, like working in a factory when they were like, uh, in the, in their lower teens, like 10 or 13 years old, because they, you know, had lied about their age or, or what have you. Um, so it's, it's always cool to hear about that. And it's just, they, they saw an opportunity, uh, with transportation because of all the stuff that needed to get moved. And for the most part, it didn't require, you know, you could say it's, you know, you could call it, for lack of better words, you know, unskilled in a way of that it doesn't require financial uh, knowledge or they didn't have to have the knowledge of maybe, uh, you know, the Carnegie's or the Rockefeller's or the names of the time. It was, you know, can you have access to a, you know, can you find access to a carriage and a horse and, you know, can you put stuff in it? And that's and that's what they did. They just they were able to put that together and that's how they just started moving stuff. They just moved stuff around the local area, you know, people there was furniture that needed to get moved from house to house or from uh, furniture stores to people's houses and restaurants needed ice for their food. The restaurants also needed some of their food to, you know, move, moved around. And it kind of just went from there. And uh, they just, they were one of the first to really do it in the area. So that's just why it spot, you know, that's just, they, they were kind of just, the family to do it. And that's what they had to lean on was the fact that they did it as a family. They did it as, you know, two brothers. Um, and they had that going behind them to do it. It's it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a cool story. The story's a part of Waterbury's kind of general history. Like I said, it was, you know, there's a lot of it that's in a book about Italian families from Waterbury and it grew from there and they stuck together. And I mean, the, the, What's great about what's awesome about what they did was they not only provided good jobs, they were active members in like the community. Like I believe they brought they brought like a, a professional baseball team to the city of Waterbury at one point in, in, in the 50s or so. They were called the Waterbury Timers um, because like they love sports. So, they, they you know, they had paid to bring a sports team in here. You know, there was so much they, they did outside of just trucking that kind of brought an identity and like a pride to the Waterbury area, which, you know, for, uh, for those who don't know, Waterbury is called the Brass City. Um, it's sort of, you know, that's how Waterbury genuinely made its name was for, for all the, the brass that was made there throughout, you know, the later 19th and, and most of the 20th century. Um, 
you know, from buttons to bullets and every and everything like that. Yeah. So, so they they're immigrants. They come here. They work hard. Love hearing stories like that, right? And then it goes on for a long time, a really long time. Sounds like up until the eighties or nineties, right? Yeah. So it, that right. Yeah. Yeah. It lasted from, like I said, they officially incorporated in 1923. So, you know, it would have been the a hundred year anniversary this year. Wish, wish it was, would have been a great to, you know, be a terminal manager or something there. But uh, essentially what had happened was in 1980. So, and let's backtrack in 1934, president, uh, Roosevelt FDR passes the the Motor Carrier Act, which um, essentially regulated the trucking industry, with the exception of uh, agriculture, because uh, this is a way to combat the Great Depression. And so it set like a minimum price for freight rates for everything besides agriculture to stop food prices from rising uh, during the Great Depression. And now that act was deregulated in 1980 by president jimmy carter it's it's famously called deregulation which essentially just removed the federal motor carrier act of 1934. now what that did was it it eliminated the freight rates um like throughout and it also allowed other carrier authorities to come in and work across uh work across state lines now lumbar did uh survive uh, for a couple of years after that but eventually they did have to sell in 1984 to north bend transfer but North Penn Transfer also ended up folding in 1992 due to union contract negotiations. Now, what it did with deregulation is when it eliminated the freight rates, now it was the unions who lobbied for freight rates to remain high. So that way they can continue to pay good wages and afford you know, the pensions for their employees. And now the, the argument for it was to open up the market for newer companies. And uh, it was supposedly going to lower prices because at the time there was some inflation going on uh, and this was kind of jimmy carter's mm. way to hopefully combat the inflation that was going on it it didn't really work um it you know and there there are a lot of free market type people who will who will you know kind of say that, that it was a good idea overall because it allowed other people to start businesses and there were and there are companies of guys who were able to come in and write similar stories that my family did because when it came to freight like certain lanes were kind of owned by people like for example pre-1980 how it worked was say i wanted to start a trucking company because i knew a friend who needed me to haul toilet paper from dallas to uh, houston or something like that now what you'd have to do is you'd have to go in front of the texas department of transportation and and and, the, and basically request permission to have the authority to run that specific lane now when that happens it gets voted on so if there's already a trucking company there that's like, oh, wait a minute, he wants to come, you know, run this lane. Well, we can afford to just add more trucks. We don't need to let another business and they won't let you in. So it's kind of there was kind of a, a, a stranglehold on the industry. Now, when it was like that, the thing was at the time, it was also harder to get your CDL. You kind of similar to how unions are now to get in a union, you kind of needed to know somebody or be connected in, to it in a way. Or you had to work on the agricultural side of things. Uh, or moving produce, which was primarily down south, which is where the produce is and where cattle is. And those people, you were raised by your father or your grandfather, and they taught you how to do it. And so that's how you were in, you were able to get your CDL. So it was kind of split. So you either had to be in the union or you had to be, or run agriculture, or you had to run illegally altogether. 
uh, which, you know, some people did that too, but it was harder to get your CDL and the training was a little, you know, was a little bit, I'd say it was probably better pre-1980 because you didn't, as opposed to today, when you get your CDL today, you'll, you essentially go to school for four weeks, learn how to pass a test, go work for a huge company, be with a trainer for two weeks, and then you're on your own throughout the United States. Whereas pre-1980, you, it took a while to get your CDL or chauffeur's license, whatever it was called, uh, you know, or uh, I think in Canada, they call it a class A or something like that. Um, you know, your first job would be like a local job. You would work around your area. And that's primarily what, what Lombard did. Like when they became a motor carrier, they, they operated in the Northeast, but these drivers were home every night making salaries that were the equivalent of six figures today. And they were moving general your general freight, like freight of all kinds, furniture, land, you know, anything that essentially, I guess, you know, Walmart would move, you know, places like my family would move. Yeah, I think that's a great, even being in the industry, you know, guys talk about deregulation and I didn't necessarily always know exactly what it meant. So I think that was a great primer. And for people that are outside of the industry, it's a good metric for where we went in the peak of American blue collar work from the 40s to call it the 70s or 80s to today and how things have changed. And you see the downward pressure on these guys, guys like yourself. And you can almost feel it, but you don't know what's going on, right? So it's good for you to get on here and talk about these kinds of things because I don't think a lot of people realize why there is pressure. They can see it. They know that that trucker's stressed out. They know he's overweight or upset that he's not home every night and his truck's falling apart, but they don't know why. So... It's good for people to hear these kinds of stories. All that being said, um, I want to know. I want to know where we stand today. Like, do you still face these problems? I mean, obviously, to some extent, you do because no r regulation has happened since then. But, but what problems do you see specifically? I want to. I know you. You and Gord talk about the CDL mill. You guys talk about the pay, the being home. Kind of catch us up. Catch us up on that. What is a CDL mill when you guys, if I hear someone talking about a CDL mill, what are they talking about? Yeah, the, 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 yeah, the old CDL milling industrial complex. And the, and the, the term is basically like mill because it's just a meat, almost like a grinder. It's just grind, you know, it's just a churn and burn, a meat and seeds type thing. And, and it essentially stemmed from deregulation because what it really allowed was, and look, I'm not here to argue unions. I understand maybe some of the listeners may be pro, for, or against. Um, I think unions do serve a purpose for some jobs, maybe not for others. Definitely not here to argue, you know, the purpose uh, of unions or whatever. And I mean, in a sense, I'm kind of more pro-union because it is how I was raised. Um, you know, but some people argue, oh, you know, you're just paying into this slush fund. And, you know, my retort to that is like, have you seen, you know, what are your tax dollars paying for it? So it's kind of the same thing. Either way, you you know, maybe you're not getting what you're paying for. I get that argument, but that's not what I'm, we're really talking about. But since deregulation, what it allowed was instead of, because it, in, in the best way to put it is the largest stakeholder in the transportation industry is the driver. And pre-deregulation, the driver had control 
over what ha was going on, primarily with wages, the work-life balance, everything like that. Like the labor controlled that. And labor, you know, and I and people think this sounds fucking communist or whatever, but labor does have a say. You know, they do have, you know, I think their opinion matters. They are the ones doing the work. And so the control uh, or the, uh, after deregulation shifted from the labor who doesn't necessarily have the monetary power of large retailers was able to be shifted and it allowed for major retailers to come in and kind of and take control of the market. And so what has happened is you see, you know, these companies like Werner, Schneider, uh, Pam, um, J.B. Hunt, you see these guys are able to kind of come in and, and stick their fingers into things. And they took control of everything in the industry, which includes the training of new drivers. So when it comes to the CDL mill, what is uh, and, and this is a slow road because for, for still a little while, I mean, things probably remained OK, but it's just perpetually gone downhill as the technology has even gotten better because as the technology within trucks and has gotten better because they have all these after treatment systems now with electronic logs as the technology has improved the you know the recruitment and retention has gone down and the people who control it now instead of the driver are the companies so the companies are who are in charge of training new drivers because nowadays even if on your own say for example i wanted to pay to get my own you know to get my cdl if i wanted to pay to get it and then i wanted to get a job it's almost impossible to get a good job off the bat because if you want to go work for a small carrier or your friend who has a small who has a small company, it's almost unaffordable for them because of the cost of insurance. Insuring new drivers is 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 almost is next to uh, unaffordable, and and how much it jumps up their overhead and costs to put a new CDL driver in a truck. The fix to that was these mega carriers are all self-insured. <clears throat> They're self-insured, and then they have their own. CDL schools and all this is subsidized by the taxpayer. So it, it and it lures people in because up front, if you want to get your CDL, they'll pay for you to get it, but then you have to go work for them. Now, when you work for them, you just have to be a number and the conditions you're, you're under, you know, you go ignored, you'll be sitting, waiting for loads. Um, you know, you, your appointment times will, will be bad. You're sitting at these shippers and receivers for hours. Shippers and receivers won't let you use the bathroom. There's a, you know, there's a, issues with truck parking. So the job itself isn't set up to necessarily, you know, motivate people. Like it's like the workplace conditions overall within the industry have been failing over the past, you know, uh, 40 years in itself with truck parking being, being an issue. So since the conditions aren't worth it, and the weight and the wages also aren't worth it. People just end up quitting. You know, the you know, the people end up leaving, you know, you know, working for these companies every three months. You know, essentially every 90 days, you know, your general freight of all kinds from these companies are new are new drivers. Uh like that's so that's so that's where it's at with the CDL milling industrial complex. They're hiring three drivers for every one job because they know that these people are just eventually going to quit and 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 uh quit and then they'll replace them with the next guy and they just keep on doing that and they've almost and they've adjusted this turnover to be in their you know p and l statements uh and it fixes into where they're still profitable that's just the road we're on and it's just it's just eventually rolled on so long without being corrected in any way in any corner or facade of the industry that that's now what we're left with is this almost churn and burn and the people who do stick around the people who are in it either or either go into a niche like moving flatbed or heavy equipment 
or they'll get into logging. Like they'll get into a very niche part of the industry, which is far less than what it is. But your general freight, the bulk of where your food, clothes, you know, everything in your house, the bulk of the industry is all just new revolving door of drivers. Because and and with that, because the pay hasn't kept up either. I mean, I don't have the exact percentage, but you know, pre nineteen eighty to today, to today, the pay has essentially been cut in half. Um, you know, and the hours worked has legitimately probably doubled. Um, given that people are now over the road more and they're, you know, they're driving longer hours. So the pay has dropped and all it's done is, uh, you know, and and since it's such a revolving door, we're at the point to where we're also importing drivers from other countries. Um, and in my, in, and in my personal experience, and this is not, and this isn't conspiracy, how I'm wording it. I was at CDL school with three people who were sent there by Texas workforce unemployment, which, and they were sent there under the demand of either get your CDL or lose your unemployment benefits. By definition, that is the state. That's the government forcing people to becoming truck drivers. There's no way, there's no like, that's not rhetoric. That's not conspiracy. We're at the point to where the government is making people become truckers. And it's just like that, that kind of that action, that going on should, should frighten people. Like that should raise some bells. Like, hold on, wait a minute. Like some, something's definitely going on here. Something needs to change. But, and then some people argue back, oh, that's the free market. Oh, just quit. And like, that's their answer is, oh, just quit. And it's like, well, quitting is actually making things worse. And it's like, oh, you chose this. And it's like, but yeah, genuinely this career can be fulfilling, can be satisfying, can allow you an opportunity to grow. But when things are in your way that are making it more dangerous, you know, there's a reason to kind of dig your heels in and, and, and fight for it. Yeah, so I just want to give a personal testament to that. Um, you're talking about unemployed guys and putting bodies in seats. And that's something I see every day at my shop, right? So I control our outbound freight. And I'm trying to get reputable drivers that I know, that I trust, guys like you in there, right? On the flip side, my inbound freight, just like you're talking about, is a basic commodity that comes in a dry van me and seats and i get guys that take a half hour to hit a dock because they can't back up they can hardly speak to me they don't they don't speak proper english it's an inefficient system for every stakeholder it costs me time and money it costs the company time and money and in their hazard on the road so i just wanted to give you know my personal experience there and and second what you're saying because it is important and it's not only not only is it disappointing from uh, from someone who takes pride in what they do, takes pride in their country, but it's it's financially inefficient. Like you're not saving anyone money. So if we're gonna go on this rant about about a free market, it's not a free market for the exact reasons you just listed, right? It's it's subsidized by the taxpayer. Exactly. Exactly. And then. It's subsidized up front, and then it also is costing us money on the back end. That that's the part a lot of people don't see is the inefficiency on the back end. You pay for it, you just don't know you pay for it. Yeah, so somewhere along the way, that the, there's a cost that ends up getting passed on to the consumer because of the inefficiencies of the supply chain. Whether that's the increase in accidents, the increase in fatalities, you know, the um, or what you know when drivers can move 
and when they can't move. You know, the, just just the retention issue alone, drivers quitting slows down freight, it's a cost to other people. I mean, from a training perspective, in, in what world would you ever, and this is like, you know, you're a parent, obviously you, you have kids, you know, and I feel like one of the biggest, probably one of the most frightening things for a parent, and I'm not a parent yet, but I remember how scared my parents were. It's like when, when your kid can drive, because that's when it because you know, because of the outside world. Now, you know, we're afraid uh, of letting our 16 year old kids drive. However, we're perfectly, you know, people as a society, for some reason, we're okay with or just blind to allowing. And like I said, I'm not anti-immigration. I love the fact that guys want to come here and start these businesses and do this, especially if they're doing if they're doing it, the you know, uh, you know, to advance and better their lives. But guess what? We're not doing them any favors and we're actually making it worse for them if the training isn't there. Because if I'm, for example, if I was found myself as a as a new immigrant from Somalia and I got here to the United States, they haven't even in some circumstances you have a guy, you have guys by the thousands who have possibly been living in the United States for less than six months. And they have and they've been in only in one area, too. They haven't really gone outside of wherever they emigrated to in a country as huge as the U.S. Because you can get a CDL in four weeks and then go work for a CR England or one of these mega carriers for two, two to four weeks with a trainer. So in essentially six to ten weeks, you could be a new immigrant to the United States and only maybe live in, say, the Bakersfield, California area. And then all of a sudden, these people are on the I-90 Mountain Pass in December in Idaho. They're going through Colorado in December. They're driving in New York City. They're driving it, you know, they're driving in areas they've never seen before. And they've never even driven a car in the United States. But apparently, hey, it's cool. Let's, you know, let's put let's just put them through this, like, let's make sure they can pass a test. Oh, and then they can run teams with a trainer for two to three weeks. Oh, and they can actually, they're authorized to just drive literally everywhere in the United States. And it's just, you're supposed to thumbs up it and then call them a professional on top of it. You know, DOT considers them a professional. They're held to this standard of professional, but they're not paid like it and they're not trained like it. You know, it's pretty wild. Yeah. When you, when you frame it like that and when you understand the intricacies like that, I think probably a lot more people become scared to drive on the interstate because it sounds far-fetched but it's real i see it you see it right it's it's a very real thing you know we have guys come to northern michigan in the middle of february when there's four feet of snow on the ground and they they've never been here they don't know how to dress and they're in flip-flops and shorts and what happens when they break down on the side of the road it's just it's not a good look it's not a good um it's not safe right so I think we beat that horse up enough. I want to I want to change topics a little bit because I think if we turn put a positive spin on this thing, there's guys like you out there doing just kicking butt and taking names, doing everything awesome. So what are you up to now? Who do you work for? Where do you drive? You know, I had you on Heartland Revival for a reason. You spend a lot of time in the center of this country. I mean, tell us a little bit about your day to day. Yeah, my day to day now. So, like I said, I got a truck uh, in April of last year, 2022. And first thing I did was I, I contracted actually for a, a company I was a company driver for. I was moving, you know, I was doing, still doing drive in, uh, booking my own loads, uh, you know, meeting brokers, making phone calls, um, you know, running a business. It, I learned a lot. Um, couldn't have, couldn't have started doing it at a worse time. You know, fuel prices skyrocketed. Um, rates were still okay, but weren't keeping up with the fuel. My situation was very lucky. 
Um, so, I mean, I was generally going everywhere, but I can say just for um, market purposes last year, I made my money in the middle of the United States. I mean, I like the hot markets was, you know, my goal was get out of central Texas and get to Northwest Arkansas. And from the Northwest Arkansas, Joplin, Missouri area is where you can get, you can bump and bound anywhere. You can get the best, an, an ideal couple of weeks last year would be me taking a load out of Waco, going back up to Gravit, Arkansas, grabbing something either out of, you know, from the caves in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, it's really cool. They got these caves down there where they, you know, for beverages, for like temperature stuff. And so, and I'd take something out of Springfield and head on over to Columbus, Ohio. And then I'd grab something within 150, 200 miles of Columbus. And that would shoot, you know, back to Minnesota or to Kansas. And then, you know, and I can, and I would just like work around and that's and, and shoot down to Louisiana. And then sometimes there was something from Louisiana that would go right back up to Illinois. And I, uh, and then some stuff would shoot me down to Tennessee. So I kind of, that was my domain last year was East of 35 south of i-80 um and kind of i didn't really cross into georgia that much and stay out of the northeast like that is where the rates were good that's where i was running uh that's where it stayed good but now uh you know towards the end of the year the spot market which for people who don't know is just uh loads that are put on load boards like they're they're kind of like uh as our friend reed would call them the tinder of freight you can swipe right or left on on loads that become available uh kind of that are in excess that market was kind of dying. So what I did was I actually leased my truck on to a respectable carrier out of Waterloo, Iowa. Um, and great time, by the way, big shout out to the people of Iowa. I haven't met one mean person there. Um, love how the States run. I love the pe people there really glad to, uh, be, be in that region so often. So Warren transport's been around since 1950 as a carrier, and they've actually run under the contractor model the entire time they've been a carrier where guys own trucks and they, would lease under their authority and move and move freight. And currently I work for their specialized division, uh, moving uh, equipment, on, whether it's on a flatbed step deck or, or RGN, removable gooseneck or low boy, as they're called. And we move a lot of agricultural equipment. So like Warren has a con, you know, contracts with John Deere. Um, they, you know, and so we move a lot of deer, uh, you know, in and out of Waterloo because deer is manufactured in Waterloo as well as in the quad cities area. Uh, of Illinois. So I'll take, and, and I've taken John Deere equipment to John Deere dealerships. I've gotten to take equipment out of Georgia and bring it to, uh, you know, farms. I brought, I've been to a farm in Maryland. I've been to a farm in Iowa. So we're taking equipment, you know, brand new tractors, brand new combines, uh, right down to, to farms. We're also moving, I mean, right now I have a, a load of, you know, these two conveyor belts that are on their way to Thunder Bay, Ontario, and I've done another load like this where I took conveyor belts and they're made by Continental and they go out to these uh, companies that are on the Great Lakes and these conveyor belts go into, they go into these tunnels in the Great Lakes and it takes out rock salt uh, and, and that, and it comes back out on the belts that I'm delivering. And then that rock salt, all that stuff goes on boats, trains, and like hundreds of trucks out to, you know, wherever, it, wherever it needs to go. But primarily that's what I'm doing now is, is running flatbed, you know, and it's just, Fortunately, with how Warren's set up and who their contracts are with like Caterpillar and John Deere, moving a lot of agriculture equipment, a um, lot of uh, like I, I moved a lot of steel framing for building materials uh, to a new warehouse that was being built in uh, Western North Carolina. That was a facility. Uh, it, it was a medical facility that makes uh, medicine. 
and they're, they're adding onto their warehouse and I brought building materials up there. So that's, that's primarily what I'm doing now. Yeah. So you just hit like all my favorite topics. I'm going to have to piece them apart a little bit here. Um, first thing I want to piece apart is you like staying in the Midwest because there's always freight. There's a, there's a story I want to tell there. The rates are good in the trucking industry when manufacturers or shippers like myself need to outcompete other shippers. The rates are poor in an area when there's more trucks than there is production because then the producer or the shipper can negotiate because they have options. So when someone like you comes on here and says, I like to stay in the Midwest because my rates are good, that tells a story. There's a story in there and that story is in the Midwest, you still have a surplus of production compared to the rest of the country. You still have more things made, more freight to be moved. And you know, that's kind of my, my whole gig online or whatever, but, but I think that's important. And it's a, it's a creative way that you can learn that is by driving a truck across the country. I wouldn't have it's in Antarctica and I wouldn't have known that if I didn't move to Texas and get into trucking. Now I kind of had that idea. I knew I couldn't start trucking in the Northeast because the cost of running a business in the Northeast is very unaffordable, but the 35 corridor anywhere on the 35 corridor, you know, that's the main artery of the, of this country. You know, anything you could peel off right and left and do anything from I 35, but like without driving, you're absolutely right. You wouldn't realize it, but everything is, is made and moved you know, from the, from the Midwest, even, you know, on the coastlines, yes, you have the ports, but that's all stuff coming in. And then at that same way, I mean, there's another reason why the Midwest is so good because from, from places like New Jersey and from Southern California and, uh, you know, Port of Savannah, Jacksonville, as well as, you know, you could, you could also, you know, put in uh, Baltimore and the Port of Galveston out there from the ports, stuff gets on trains. And then that tr those trains come to the middle of the country. They come to Kansas City. They come to Fort Worth. Uh, I know Fort Worth, you know, you wouldn't necessarily call the Midwest, but it comes to it like those trains come to the middle of the country. And then from there goes out to your, you know, to where all the people live in throughout the Midwest. So everything's got to come there. And then it goes because stuff that comes in from these ports also goes to the manufacturers to the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a thing that a lot of people forget. And, and yeah, maybe we like to boast a little bit in the Midwest, but not everything starts here. A lot of stuff comes in, especially certain raw materials, you know, fiberglass being one of them. That's just an industry I know about. Now ours comes from the U S but a lot of it comes from China. And that glass will come in overseas and then have a secondary refinement. There'll be a secondary. They're either converting that fiberglass into a different form or turning that fiberglass into a product. So absolutely, the ports play a big role and, and we can't just act like they don't exist and the Midwest is the best thing ever. But that, that intermediary step is just one more cash exchange in the economy and that cash exchange is important for one it's because mostly because it supports a lot of jobs but like you said those main arteries to get to the center of the country when you're on 80 or 35 there's a reason 
you see a truck for every car. And that reason is goods could be going out or coming in. And uh, I think that's something a lot of people forget. Maybe they always think, you know, engines just appear somewhere in Detroit. Well, that, <laughs> that's not exactly the case, right? So, um, yeah, you did a really good job of explaining that. Now, the second thing I fanboyed in over your in your first little spiel there was uh, was the farm equipment. So you're hauling a lot for deer, for cat, for all these other guys. What's the coolest thing you hauled? Coolest thing I've hauled so far. I'm trying to think. It has to have been. I it has to have been the the combine I hauled because there's like, uh, I mean, it, it mainly because it was the the widest and tallest uh, thing I've hauled. So I'd almost say that 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 was the coolest. But I'm also thinking. But in reference to cool, it's hard to sum it up because cool is in kind of like American engine, like I guess you know, flexing American power was bringing uh, like I brought to, you know, I got brought hay balers and and regular deer tractors out when when I bring them out to the port of Baltimore, um, they're being sold overseas. So it's like in so in overall coolness, like if we're talking about the coolness factor. I love the fact that I've brought a product made in the United States, like a John Deere tractor, like a, a hay baler, uh, going and it's going to a port to the port of Baltimore, and it's going to Belgium, where uh, you know some some farmer from Belgium is about to use this, or some guy a farm in South Africa, South Africa, if I did the accent right, um, you know they're going to use it, so that's cool. But I'd say the cool, I mean, the the combine I brought down to to Alabama, I mean it was eleven eleven wide. Uh, I mean, the thing itself, like it was literally, you know, built right, you know, right there, you know, where it was loaded was built and they bring it right in, you know, at this facility, you, you back into this bay and they bring it right in over like overhead, drop it on your trailer. You know, they've got to nail certain parts down. That's the coolest thing. I mean, it looks like a freaking spaceship. Like, I'm not sure if you've seen the combines, but like the front of it, like it's got that all glass in the front and it looks like it's. Uh, it looks like a fucking spaceship. Like it makes me want to be a farmer. When I look at like when I look at that combine, I'm like, damn, dude, that's some king. You know, that's some king shit right there. Yeah, those the new tech, the GPSs. You know, some of them got, got refrigerators and in a proper throne in there. Some of that that new tractor technology is just unreal. But that they're loading these with overhead cranes, though. No one's driving them on your trailer. They're dropping them. Uh, the combine was dropped on because it didn't come with the tires like the So the, the tires were already at the dealership. So mm -hmm. I, I drove it without the tires. So, yeah, they chained it on, you know, and, the, you know, they chained it from the, the top and they drop it down. The tractors, though, are driven on. And I'd say that that's probably been the coolest part, because like when you get when you get reloaded out of the port of Baltimore, um, you know, the, the port has just rose of uh you know john deere's there that because uh, many john deere models are also manufactured in germany they uh john deere's split between waterloo and, and germany for the bulk of their manufacturing so the ones that come back from germany they got rows of them the port of baltimore and went and the you know the the longshoremen they're not getting it for you they give you the serial number and then you got to go out and find it and then so i got to drive them on and i'll drive them on to the you know and that's like i think that's the coolest thing because like if i was at a shipper receiver running drive van uh, look, I've loaded trucks at my last job at a warehouse. Like I've done that before, but being able to like drive a tractor onto the trailer, chaining it down yourself, there is like a, a real big pride thing to like doing that. Oh yeah. I mean, I drive a little Toyota forklift at work. The difference between a little Toyota forklift and uh, uh, 
80,000 pound John Deere is uh, pretty big. And that seems just like, yeah, you might make me want to become a driver just to load deers all day. Oh yeah. You give it, you can, I mean, I, I'm, I'm jealous of the guys who are like quote unquote loaders, like where their whole job is just loading guys. I'm like, it actually could be pretty fun. Like they're just, they're literally just putting stuff on, on trailers all day. I mean, they're screwing stuff in. It actually takes some like technical skilled work for that, for you to like load, load some stuff. Cause I've had to pick up cedars before too. I picked them up in Ohio. Actually, they were, they were made right in Ohio. I think at an agco facility. Uh, I forget the town. It was somewhere. I'd have to look it up, but I, I picked up cedars that were made in Ohio that went down to a, an agricultural or dealership in, in Georgia. And like the way, you know, the way those guys have to load them, it's like, it's pretty art- articulate. There's a way they have to do it. So it doesn't, you know, so it's legal and so like that. And then I'm responsible for, you know, securing it. Man, that is, that is very neat. Um, And then the last thing you gave that one little spiel and there's tons of gold in there, Mike. So we're going to keep picking at it. Um, the last thing you got conveyors on right now, this is something I know a little bit about because I live in the great lakes is the great lakes has a massive aggregate industry. So rock salt, like you mentioned, it can be limestone, it can be, um, concrete and, and you're right. There's a ton of this stuff that's mined on the shores of superior or Michigan or whatever great lake. And then they're using those conveyors that you got on your trailer right now to load to load freighters or what what we locally call lakers uh, which are basically just freight ships but they're they only stay on the great lakes and what makes a laker a laker is you see these ships that are out on the ocean they're these big flat decks and they're not always flat decks but mostly flat decks with this big pile of containers on the contrary lakers were bare basically purpose built for the thing that you're delivering They're purpose built instead of being a flat deck with containers they have these big bins essentially uh built into the hull where they can open this bin from the top and then your conveyor comes over the top and dumps in rock salt asphalt limestone whatever it is and when you first when i first moved up here one thing is that I, you know, you see these things, you start asking questions. You're like, what are these guys carrying? And someone's like limestone and you scratch your head and you go, why, (laughs) why would someone fill an entire ship with limestone? It seems like, it seems like it costs a lot of money to move something so trivial. And then you start to realize that limestone or salt or concrete is in just about everything. So it can be an ag lime that we're fertilizing fields with. It can be in paper products. Basically, any kind of paper product that's on the market today has some lime derivative in it. Um, it can be in water purification systems. So, you know, your your local sewer authority has their plant where they're filtering clean water for you. That has aggregate lime in it and in some form or another. So to hear that you got uh, conveyors on your deck right now headed to Thunder Bay, that's that's pretty darn cool. No, I, I, I kind of like, I was so actually like honored to take, to take it too for, for that reason, because like, I know exactly where it's going, what it's doing. And it's such an under, it's such an underbelly of the supply chain and the economy that people don't know about. I was actually just having this conversation on a conference call today 
with uh, Todd Ziegler, the CEO of, of Truck Coin Swap, which is, you know, something that me and our, our friend Dom are affiliated with. And I was telling him about that. And he was like, I really, truly believe that if and this is these are his words, he's like, if people like saw like what actually went into so much of their daily lives, like how much more they would appreciate it. Like if they could see, because like what you just said with the limestone, with what these conveyor belts do, like if people knew that, like it's almost my friend who's a pilot, uh, you know, he's a flight instructor down in central Texas. He, he says it all the time that, uh, you know, we as like humans, and this is mainly any like human race, not just Americans. Like we undervalue like the miracle of flight. Like we, we take so much advantage and even ship travel today. I mean, like I just watched kingdom of heaven, the other day, you know, about the, you know, one of, one of the, you know, during the times of the Crusades and Saladin, and he has to take ship from, you know, the port of Messina in Italy, you know, and that's how they would get to back to the Holy land. And like traveling on ship was sometimes like a 50, 50 shot. You didn't know what the weather was going to be. And there's so much, that's a miracle. Uh, and by, by any stretch of the means, like a hundred to 200 to 300 years ago would be considered a miracle to have or such a convenience, like what you said with the lime, with water purification and all that stuff that people, I don't think, uh, appreciate as much anymore because they don't know the work that goes into it because it's such an invisible hand, you know, that's just happening while, while people go to sleep, while it happens. And it, it, it it's to me, it's mind blowing. Me, it gets me fired up. Me, I, I could talk about it for hours. I think it's I think it's some of the most amazing stuff. Yeah, that's. I, I know I kind of made that my online gig, so I don't need to repeat it here, but it, yeah, no, it is. It is right. It's, it's truly amazing. Um, just if anyone's being nitpicky out there, I should clarify, they're probably not loading lime in Thunder Bay. Um, but a lot of, a lot of lime, um, does get pulled out of Northern Michigan. So up around, you know, if you consider Michigan a mitten up around the tip of the mitten around Bay city, there's a lot of lime. In fact, the largest lime quarry in the world is up there. We talked about we talked about what you do, and I, I think I think you've done an unreal job of conveying the importance of the, of this to to the listener. Everything you touch is is moved by a trucker, and everything and for everything that you know you touch, there's about a hundred things behind the scenes that you don't know about. Um, I just gave this whole spiel on Great Lakes shipping, and I'd even mention Duluth. Basically, I don't know what the percentage is, but you have these these steel cities, Gary, Detroit, all these steel mills on the kind of the southern Great Lakes. They're all being fed out of Duluth. So when I talk about uh, Lakers on on Lake Superior, so much of that is coming out of Duluth, and people might understand. Yeah, there's a factory in Detroit that makes a car or, you know, they're making coils in Gary. No one, no one stops to think that all that iron came out of Duluth and it had to get to Gary. There's not iron in Gary. I had to get there. And that's all this behind the scenes stuff that you're talking about. Yeah, I think people take it for granted. And, and so I, I appreciate that you said that. I think we've done a great job. You've done a great job of highlighting the issues you guys face, the cool stuff you do, and and what you're seeing on the road, kind of the supremacy of the middle of this country. If I'm a listener, if I'm listening to this podcast right now, I'm tuning in and I think, oh man, Mike has a cool story. 
what can the layman do? I shouldn't use layman. That's a strong term. But what can the layman do to, to help you guys as truckers or to help these manufacturers? What I'm trying to ask is, how do we win? How do we let the people and the ideology of the center of this country beat out the globalist, bureaucratic, Zog empire that we see encroaching right now? Yeah, no, this, this is a great question. I, I, I love this topic because it's it winning is very possible. Um, and number, it starts with the mentality that you have, having a sort of Midwest, you know, nationalistic view of things. I tell people all the time, God bless the mis- God bless the Midwest. And, uh, you know, just from who the people are there and everything like that. But it's it's true. So much is made there. I talked about this with our friend Chris, a.k.a. Indy Trucker. The American dream is very much still alive in places like Ohio and in parts of the Midwest. I, I mean, people like a lot of people where I'm from feel disenfranchised. They can't afford a home. They can't do this. They're not finding filling jobs. But you want to know what? Like there are jobs in the Midwest that absolutely provide so much service and so much building, you know, that goes on in this country from agriculture, equipment, you name it. You can get a respectable job at a warehouse or a manufacturer almost anywhere in a Midwestern state, make a decent wage. Your wife could also work at the same time and you guys can make decent wages and the price of real estate isn't that bad. So so when it comes to winning is realizing where you need to go to win. And the Midwest is one of those places. For, and I, I use this example all the time. My family, I've been to Italy before. I haven't been down, I haven't been down to Naples yet. And I'm sure it's just as beautiful as the rest of the country. But my family left what is could be arguably one of the most beautiful places in the world. Uh, when I, you know, I, when I've gone there, we've been through most of the country. It's unbelievable how gorgeous it is. I mean, even, even in the middle of the country where all the farming is like how, like how they ever decided to leave that for a place that you couldn't Google on the internet. You only read about in letters. There really, there wasn't a telephone. You couldn't text about it. You couldn't send pictures. They just heard that going, you know, to, to the U S it's somewhere in the New York city area was great. And they, put it all in, went all in on themselves and let, you know, went over there with a minimal amount of money without speaking the language and went to Waterbury, Connecticut of all places, you know? And so they took that risk. So for people to win, you need to take the risk on where you want to live. And so if you're living in a place that you feel disenfranchised and you're seeing places that where, and you're seeing places or areas where people are succeeding, it's going there. But then at the same time, it starts with, it starts with the culture too. Uh, You know, I was raised by parents that always told me you could be whatever you want, but you know, this is the pathway you have to do it. Um, so for anybody who's raising kids or anything like there is teaching is changing the narrative. We need to change the narrative on how we're selling um, careers for people uh, by letting them know that, hey, this is this. These are viable options like go like you don't have to go, you know, to this university to do, you know, to do this. Like you can go start welding. You can go do this like actively marketing towards it at a grassroots level about what we need in this country. I mean, we're, we're, fa- we're at the point now when it comes to skilled labor and tradesmen, where eventually in the next 20 years, it could become a national security risk, you know, and the idea of when it comes to building and maintaining our infrastructure of not having people to, to do it. So, I mean, when it comes to winning, it's changing that narrative of, Hey, you know, my parents sold me this, like, no, you shouldn't go trucking. You deserve better. Or you, you shouldn't go to this school because you can do better. And to that, I say better than what? 
better than building a country, better than building a strong community, better than building, you know, the buildings that, you know, uh, that doctors are going to work in. I just recently delivered a boiler that was made in Georgia. Uh, uh, I, I, I delivered a boiler to a hospital, uh, what was going to be a new hospital right outside Las Vegas, Nevada. Person, you know, like are doctors and people who help people help sick people patriotic? Absolutely. But the entire process of that hospital getting built, like, I if no no college degree besides going to school to be a doctor is going to do anything to help that hospital. But me, the driver, but the manufacturers of that boiler, me, the driver, and then the union iron workers that are building that boiler. That's how you make a strong country. That's how you make a strong society. And guess what? Going to school for um, I don't really know going to school for anything, but engineering at this point, you know, what, what does that purpose serve? So it's all about changing the narrative and, uh, and how we market our jobs and how we market them as professions towards people. My grandmother talks to me about her father all the time about how he was so uneducated and didn't have a high school education, but how much he could build and how he could build fireplaces, you know, out of stone. He was proficient in masonry, all this stuff. And I've told my grandmother, you know, she's having this conversation with me. I said, do you know that your father's labor, what he knew how to do then, you know, in the, you know, cause he came over here from Italy and right after World War II, like his skill as a laborer, as somebody who could do masonry, somebody who could do work in a yard is, is valuable into possibly the millions of dollars people you know how much people would pay for a custom fireplace like those things inside building your homes like what he knew and guess what he didn't you know he didn't you know that wasn't you know it died with him essentially you know those skills died with him there are two there's a church in waterbury that had two twin spires on it and it was a, a very a great part of you know waterbury skyline when you see it from i-84 they had to take those spires down because there's nobody who exists who knows how to either remake them or maintain them nobody can do it nobody has the skill of this masonry and it's like are we gonna let you know like is that where we're gonna go where it's just where this skilled labor of building something of building your infrastructure of building what aesthetically like looks pleasing and is historical we're just gonna let it die with people um, and I think changing that narrative and continuing to have the conversation, having talks like this, talking like this amongst friends, sharing this level of content. Like, look, you know, I know that social media is, you know, we could call it the devil all we want, but it's just like the environment. You can't you're not going to dump a barrel of oil in the Great Lakes and then drink out of it. So what we need to be putting on the Internet, we can't be putting toxic energy on the Internet. We need to be talking about this, posting about what you're talking about, you know, taking pride in our you know small little cities and towns and just not being afraid of, of, you know, of challenging the, the status quo. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think, well, credit that your great grandfather, did I understand that correctly? Grandfather's grandfather. So technically okay. you're, great, you're great, twice yeah. great. Like credit to guys like that, because it's, it is the guys like that, that built the greatness in the first place. And, and now we're at a point where we can see it slipping. And like you said, not having these guys now is a national security risk. I know we talked a little bit about this on your show, but you have the DOD coming out and saying there's certain subcomponents of American military equipment that we get now from someone that's a foreign adversary and no one's here making it. And it's a oopsies on our part. You can debate whether that oopsies was intentional or not, but you're, you're exactly right. Not having the skill, not having the guys like your 
twice great grandfather or my grandfather and great grandfather. It, it's a risk. It's a sign of a society that kind of lost track of what made it great. And, and so now like that story about your, the boiler you hauled, I mean, that's, that is as American as apple pie. Like that's, I love those stories, man. It gets me fired up. I know you posted some pictures, like you go into that facility in Georgia and you just see some old bucks on top of these huge tanks getting after it with a welder and a grinder. Like that's where men go every day to put in a, a long shift and have brotherhood. And, and that's how you build a nation, right? It's, it's having those people. And when you, you, and you can talk about where to place the blame, but, but everyone, everyone should accept a little bit of that blame. It's only gotten worse generation and generation and generation. So I don't want to point fingers at anyone, but at some point someone has to step back up to the plate and say, okay, now we're going to fix it. Now I got to go learn how to be a Mason or now I got to go learn that how to get up on that, on top of that tank and make a weld that's going to hold. So these people at this hospital can have heat, right? Like, uh, so we can take care of sick people. It absolutely matters. And I grew up in a, I grew up in the 2010s and I feel like that was kind of the peak of, I was in high school in the early 2010s. And I feel like that was kind of the peak of you got to go to college and get a degree. And just like you, I know you mentioned that too. Like that was your option and you just were looking for a way out because that's all you're told. And I think we're getting better about it now. It's even how the culture was like movies were about that, you know, because in the mid 2000s, you had movies like The Perfect Score, uh, you know, which was about the SATs. You had there was a movie called Waiting with Ryan Reynolds, really funny movie, actually. And but the main but Justin Long plays a character who ends up, you know, quitting his job at a, at a restaurant to go to, you know, to go back to school for computer engineering in hopes of being more successful. I mean, I know people and this is no in, in you know, I know we're mainly talking about like blue collar manufacturing work, but I know people who our bar managers and run restaurants uh, who started, you know, as bartenders and they're running a business, which is a restaurant, which is a, you know, a, you know, whether it be local or maybe a small chain and they're doing very well, you know, they're able to have families provide and they're learning how a business runs. So, the, but it's just even, the, it was so ingrained in the culture, even movies emphasize that you needed to go to college. And I, I want in another way to win, like you said that we were talking about, well, isn't this just popped in my head, YouTube culture, and like influencer culture is also put in like this, these, this side hustle thing. People keep always talk about side hustles. If I wasn't over the road right now, I would be go. I'd be get trying to get my welding certificate on weekends. I'd be doing something on weekends to where I was learning something like welding. I have a friend who does this. She works in IT. Uh, she works in IT in Austin at a company. She does woodworking. Uh, I mean, and if she had, if she could choose she would rather do the woodworking and build decks and do all that for people and make money. If she could make the same amount of money doing that, she would rather do that. But that's that's her side hustle. But you want to know what? There's people, if you learn that, you can eventually make that a business. And I think that that's also how, how we win. It's like people getting into side hustles that aren't drop shipping, you know, cheap Chinese <laughs> shit from Amazon. But you, go get your welding certificate and then go find a guy uh, go find anybody and be like, Hey man, want help on a, a Friday? You want help on a weekend and learn how to do it. I, a friend of mine just, just did, he's an iron worker in New Jersey, 
worked with the union for a little bit, did some steel erection. Now he owns his own shop and he's building. He was just working at a former NFL guy's basement, building stairs in his basement. Yeah, no, that, you know, that's such a good point. Actually, the side hustle angle is because I think a lot of people get hung up on that. They say, well, I have this job now where I sell insurance and I can make $90,000 a year. It's like, ah, they know, they know in their bones or in their heart that what they're doing is a pyramid scheme or, or they're moving numbers around on a screen and all those people have their place and they're necessary and I'm not ragging on them, but you know, in your heart, if what you're doing is useful or not. And a lot of these people know that it's not useful, but they see the dollar signs and they don't know how to get out. And I think, I think that option there is a great option for these people like that friend of yours who's, who's doing woodworking. I know even one of the guys at my shop, he, he just loves to build how or yeah, you know, he built his own house, built a beautiful house. And um, he just loves to build and that's what he does in his day job. But then on his free time, he goes and renovates um, these kind of dilapidated mining houses. He'll take people that have investment money. He'll go in, fix up the house and they'll start using it as a rental unit. Um, That is like a win, win, win for everyone, right? You have the guy with the money that doesn't know how to, how to get it done, but he wants the income. You got the guy who just loves doing the work and is going to take the few extra bucks and the town's better off for it because now you got a handful of houses that are done up nice with a fresh paint job and a good trim and, and fresh drywall and, and everything's better off because of it. So I think that's a great option for people to think about. If you, if you only see dollar signs and you say, Oh, but my Excel spreadsheet job, how am I ever going to leave that? Well, first you have to have pride. You have to own up to the fact that maybe your job isn't that useful. I could never sit in a job where I felt like I wasn't contributing, but not everyone feels that way. I get it. And, and then you have to, then you have to just go try. You have to just get out there. I know we talk a lot about like, like you, you're a great example, right? You were working on rent a car and I can't uh, remember what you were doing in between there. I worked for a, a plumbing and heating wholesaler. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're so you were like, what were you doing when you were there, by the way? I, so I worked basically, my job was called, like I was a continuous improvement analyst. You, you can kind of say I, it was, it was a, it was a kind of a management uh, like okay. development program they had where essentially, yeah, you learn how to uh, like, I was in their operations. So I would run reports, you know, regarding like uh, open POs. I did mm. a lot. I did a lot of inventory control. Uh, Cause okay. it had to do, it had to do with branch efficiency. So I like see. you went through open orders and stuff and there's, and like you, you, you learned the invoicing, you essentially learned how that entire business runs. But at the same time, I would also work the counter, work the warehouse if need be. But I mean, I did I, a bulk of what I did a lot of because it, it matters because there's a lot of pipe there was, was a lot of inventory control. Okay. So you're, but you're, the, this is a perfect example, right? Because you're, you're working there, you're doing something maybe you don't feel the most fulfilled or you want to take the next step and they're going to argue with you about pay at some point you're just like drop the gloves and decided to truck because that's what you had pride in right you had a history in it and i think i think that's that's what people get hung up on and you only you only go around this earth once um you only get one crack at it so at some point you just got to drop the gloves and go. 
I know personally I was I did I did a few jobs where I wasn't fulfilled, right? But I'm my wife's family, my brother, my dad, they're all guys that are working with their hands. And and eventually you look around and you get so fed up with you know, I knew, I won't speak for anyone else. I felt like I wasn't pulling my weight in the family, in the in the community. Like, man, look at all these guys that are just kicking butt every day, taking names. And I maybe didn't have the best mechanical skills. Uh, but at some point, I just decided, like, I got to go try this manufacturing thing because it's meaningful, right? And so... I, I give you a credit for that because it's, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. But like you said, side jobs is a really good way to get into it. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, some people think you need to always burn the ships, which, you know, I recommend people. I tell people they need, they should leave their hometown. You know, the burn the ships mentality definitely works um, when you, do, you know, I, and that's, that's just a general philosophy thing, right. From, right. From Nietzsche, you know, man is the best hunter. Like if you take away, you know, if I take away your bread, if you don't have any food, and you're hungry. What do you? You're gonna you're gonna fight for it, right? You're gonna fight for that food, and that's and that's the logic behind that. You know, I encourage people to take those types of risks because, like, and I have a friend who tells me this all the time. A, a friend of mine from Connecticut. He always he says this. It always sticks to me. He goes, "Dude, I was happier when I was broke," because when he was broke, like he's like, "When I was broke, I, you know," because when you were broke, you were always you were just always out there talking to people, making connections, making it work. And it's like, so when you do that, I, I so I, I encourage like that pathway sometimes, cause that's kind of what we did. You know, we, you know, we moved to Texas, knowing nobody going right in head first. I mean, you know, it, and now my wife has like a, the best job she's ever had in her life. I, you know, now I, you know, am a business owner. So great things happen when you burn the ships. But if you are somebody who's still like, ah, but I have kids or, uh, you know, there's certain factors you can, you know, instead of using your free time to go to happy hour, instead of going to the bar on the weekend, you know, take a you know, take some of that money, take the two hundred dollars you're going to spend going on a Friday night, go get the welding certificate, go get like if something's interests you, if if there's something you love, like if you love to do X Y Z, you know, whatever it might be, if you love the outdoors, if you love hiking, if you love something, figure out a way to get more involved with what you love and just like start making content about it. Talk about it. Uh, get Like, you know, anything, anything at all. When, if it's something you love, because that's, you know, I talk about a lot, lack of purpose. People suffer from a lack of purpose. Most people are at a point now where they only work these jobs because it does afford them the ability to buy their time back. Like that's yeah. it. It gives them enough money yeah. to where that way, when they're not working, they can spend it on, stuff they enjoy and they've waited out and that's why it does it but overall the bulk of their life is spent working something that they don't like you can't there is ways to to weasel out of it and i think the more and more people just start reinvesting in themselves as opposed to just you know letting out that frustration at happy hour or something i think a lot better off you know parts of the world can be and parts of the community can be because when you're doing what you love because here's the thing like so i'm not making you know especially as a you know uh you know, this is only going into my second year as an owner operator. I'm not making the most amount of money in the world, uh, you know, which and this is that whole money doesn't buy happiness thing. But I'm so involved in so much other stuff now. I work more than I ever did at my last jobs. And I'm and but I'm doing so much more and making so many more connections with people. My overall energy I'm putting out there and what I'm trying to do in my community, being involved in my church at home, 
like all this stuff. Couldn't have dreamed of doing it at my last job where I was maybe making a little bit more money or if I had gotten a job or if I would leave, sell my truck tomorrow and get a better paying job. I don't know if I'd be as involved with making content, training for marathons, uh, being involved with my local church, you know, helping guys with their health and fitness and stuff like that. There's all this other stuff I do. I don't know if I'd have the headspace to do it if I wasn't actively doing something where I felt as though I had a purpose. And that's kind of what, if people did lean into what they love doing more, there's such a trickle down ancillary, uh, you know, there's a trickle down and there's ancillary things that also they're going to do that's going to benefit the lives of others in the community. Yeah. So this is, a, this is one thing I wanted to let all the, all the listeners know about you is in the trucking world, you're famous for these lunatic TikToks, and, and you just alluded to it, right? You, you do fitness, you run marathons, uh, you do a little bit of content, but, but I think what, what I want to highlight is, is you, you help people with their diet, with their activity. And um, tell, I mean, tell, tell us a little bit about that. I'll, I'll tell everyone, like, you've been helping me. I know we got paired up on that, uh, on that app, and you're helping me track my diet and making sure I get X amount of workouts in a week. Tell, tell everyone why that's so important to you. Because it's important to me, but I, I think the fuel, the fire comes out of you like no one else. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's important to me because I, I feel as though, I mean, I, I kind of wholeheartedly believe in this principle that when, and this is just, and it's that um, health and fitness as a foundation for one's life is another thing that has a, almost like working a career you love it. It'll, you know, it allows you, it opens the pathways towards other positive things that, you know, and positive change you could do when people live healthier lifestyles and get in really good shape and get jacked and exercise and all that stuff that also carries over into other, other parts of their community, other parts of their family, their relationships. Um, so it's just like, there's a phrase out the, uh, that, that doesn't make sense. That phrase actually touches in later, but the foundation of having health and fitness as like, uh, or health and fitness being a strong foundation of who you are as a person, what it does out there in your life is very important. And the reason why it's so important to me now is because I, I saw that I saw that happen o- over time from when I started losing weight. Cause I, I used to be, you know, I started like getting back into shape starting in, t- in 2018 and, you know, it, just from the time lapse of 2018 to 2023, what I've done in that time period and in the better shape I've gotten, you know, you could always, some people say correlation isn't causation, but that's just not true. Like with the better shape I've gotten, my overall quality of life has gotten better. And the thing is, there's such a, that this idea matters in the trucking industry. We talked a lot about deregulation. We talked a lot about wages dropping. We talked a lot about that. Since deregulation, the job has gotten harder. There's more hours. The conditions aren't as good. The parking is tougher. The food out here is worse. And part of me believes it's a little bit by design because when you keep people weak, um, whittled down, uh, you know, replaceable, when you, when you've take when you've taken away the autonomy from the driver of everything they do they're not going to advocate for it anymore and so if people in trucking or if drivers as a foundation started focusing on themselves getting strong what they're going to do is 
when they start getting more strong, the headspace changes. Now, all of a sudden, they're a little bit more interested in their career. Now they want to learn what goes on at their company. Now they want to learn. Now they kind of want to start taking ownership of what's going on. And they take pride. Take They take more pride in their job and they're more likely to advocate for it. Because we're at the point now where people just quit. It's a churn and burn system, right? Because that's because they're just going to be like, screw this. I quit. Why fight for it? As opposed to, no, wait a minute. I'm out here with all my brothers and sisters. I want to, I want to, you know, I'm strong enough. I want to fight for this. So that's kind of where it, uh, you know, it's, it's important to me. I, I just think that overall as a foundation, when people are sound in mind and body, it, it trickles down into taking pride in their job, what they want to do career wise, family relationships. No, you're, you're a hundred percent right. Because like, let's be honest, if we're being honest with one another, I know you know this, but but I think when someone thinks of a trucker, they don't think of the healthiest guy in the world. In fact, they think of an unhealthy guy more than likely, right? You think of the overweight 300-pound guy that has to eat McDonald's every night and and he sits in a truck for, he sits in a seat for 10 hours a day and then in his cab for how many more after that? Um, I didn't even think... It was possible, quite frankly, to to know uh, a healthy, fit trucker before you came along. And I think probably a lot of drivers don't think that. And so that's why I think what you're doing is is so meaningful because when you you're, you're exactly right. I'm not even going to try and reword it or anything. Right? It it becomes a matter of pride. And when you're beat down and you don't care, when your body is beat down, you don't care. I know it myself. I think everyone knows it, whether it's driving a truck or whatever your respective field is. If you get four hours of sleep and eat McDonald's two days in a row, you know it. By Friday, you don't care what happens. And Friday is the day that could make all the difference in the world. Friday is the day you can make your breakthrough on your product. Friday is the day you could decide to walk in someone's shop and form a relationship with them that takes your business to who knows where, right? But having the energy and having the fire, that's what that's what keeps these things going. I think to my father-in-law who runs this manufacturing company, I mean, that guy has fire 24 seven, like you wouldn't believe he always is go, go and going. And I can tell you if he didn't, the second he stopped, we would all be worse off for it. The company, the employees, but because he's always got that fire, everyone's always excited to work for him. And it just changes the day completely. Yeah, maybe he'll give you a hard time, but it, it it's almost like a military hard time. It's it's he's pushing you because he knows you can do it and everyone's going to be better off for it. But if the fire wasn't there, then where do you go? You're probably only going backwards. So, yeah, and, and and for drivers, that's the thing. So if they do if if you're a driver and you get yourself into better shape. So even though so the long game is to fix some of the problems in the industry. The long game is obviously address pay, address parking. There's all these issues we need to, to do. But in the meantime, what we need to do is make is make ourselves the best possible versions of ourselves. Because when you do that for these drivers, the conditions out here actually get better. Like they become a little bit more tolerable. When you choose to do the hard things, when you choose to tediously count your macros, when you choose to eat less of something, you know, it's like I said, because it's not all about just giving up everything and like living in extremes. When you just choose to eat a little bit less, get in the movement, do the hard things, 
you know, get up out of the chair, just going for a walk. When you do these hard things, the other things that go on that kind of piss you off, piss you off a little bit less. You know, and so like, and then your energy levels, when you do get to go home as a driver, a lot of these guys are going home. They're, you know, they're out for three weeks and then they get to go home for maybe four days or something. They're sleeping for two of them, you know, cause they don't have the energy. So when you make these changes, they start to enjoy things better. They can sleep, you know, your sleep starts to improve, you know, all the, like the, the benefits of doing it. So the long game is okay. We're going to get to the legislative and the, the problems of the industry. We're going to get there. But the more the the time you focus on yourself to get healthy is going to give you the energy for when that fight comes to hand, so so to speak. Like when we're finally ready to take them on, when we're ready to have the conversations with. Because I mean, just look at it from a, and this sounds bad, but look at it from an aesthetic standpoint. If I'm a politician or somebody who is endorsing the ATA, the American Trucking Association's agenda, and I'm somebody and I go on TikTok and all I'm seeing is people who seem to not be able to take care of themselves complaining dude throwing it right to the curb but when but if all of a sudden if people's mentality almost like we talked about changing the culture and, and how we win if they opened up their phones and they saw holy shit you know these drivers are coming together and you know like i said i'm not here to argue for or against unions but if drivers started to unify under this strong foundation of being fit taking care of themselves being extreme and certain like and they you know, it's, it's about instilling, you know, it's a little, and not to sound corny, but like you want to instill fear in your enemies and you're not going to do that by being fucking lazy. And that's kind of how, I, how uh, kind of my thought process on it. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's not only, that's good advice for everyone, not just drivers, right? You can be a group of machinists. If you show up late every day and your boss sees you eat McDonald's and all of a sudden you want to raise, how does he see you? he sees you as the guy that shows up late and eats McDonald's at lunch. If you're the guy that shows up on time and you eat chicken and rice and you got a firm handshake when you go into the office, you're going to have that leverage over that fat guy eating McDonald's. It's just a fact, whether you like it or not, it's just a fact. That's how, that's how the world works. And, and so I know we're talking about guys organizing, but it's, it's literally for every facet of life. And, and just, I want to, I'll give my little two cents on, on the importance of this. I told, I reached out to Mike and I was like, Mike, you know, I'm not quite happy with where I'm at. I think I could use a little boost right away. Mike's like, bam, I want to get you in, in this group. Let's start tracking your macros. All of a sudden I'm like, man, okay, I got to answer to someone like, let's go. Like, I gotta, I gotta do this. Um, whether I wanted to or not, um, he kind of like, place that responsibility onto me and now now I got to do this right so I wonder why I got this little bit of spare tire around my waist all of a sudden I'm tracking my macros I realize my carbs generally okay my protein yeah maybe I could eat a little bit more but then I'm like doubling my fat that I should have every day I wouldn't have known that but now I, it makes sense right so the importance of tracking, of sitting down, taking the time, and then putting together a group of guys that can hold each other accountable, you can learn a lot there. And and I, and I guess that's my way of saying thank you. So maybe that was a long-winded thank you, but thank you. I, I know we're just starting. We're, we're like in week two, but but I've started to identify the problem. So I appreciate that. Yeah, man. And I'm glad, I'm glad to have you on it. I'm glad you wanted to, to do it. And, there, you know, I've had... 
I've had people come and go uh, with jumping on and help me advise me with them, especially, you know, some guys I've met off TikTok and stuff like that. And, you know, and they've came and then they've left and they started off, you know, very fiery and then they give up. And what people don't seem to realize when it comes to like fitness, that's another thing that's wrong with our culture. We sold down these 21 day fixes and it's dude, it's, it's a long game. Like I said, I started my journey in 2018 and I wasn't even tracking. I just started, I just changed one thing here and there. And it was a low, it was, it's been a slow process, but like it took me a long time to get here. You know, think of how long it takes people to get to a certain place that they're at. And I've, I've had this conversation with guys who've like come and go on the app and you know, they'll, you know, they'll start off strong. And then it's just like, all of a sudden they give up and it's like, it's not about perfection. This translates to life, like doing this, like when it comes to tracking your food or anything like that, because in reality, you know, people, people always will talk about, Oh, 500 years ago, there weren't this many people. It's like, well, they also didn't have access to that many calories. If they did, they'd be just as, you know, that's why rich people, you know, back in the day, rich, the rich people were the ones who were overweight because they, they had all the access to all the food and they weren't moving a lot, you know, like noble people. They were always kind of like chubby. But when it comes to doing this, taking control of your health, taking care of fitness, it isn't built on perfection because I think people are convinced and I think social media has done this. It has nothing to do with being, per- you know, life doesn't demand perfection. You know, you don't demand all of your employees. It, your employees, are they fucking perfect every day? No. Are you perfect every day? Am I? No. Nobody's perfect every day, but you got to show up. Like exactly. that's all you need to do. You, you just, you just show up for it. You do it. You just win your day. You have to win your day. You do it. You know, you do it one thing at a time, controlling what you can control. That's what it's about. And it's like when you, when you, and when you do it, when you start with your health and fitness and your diet, your foundation, when you start tracking and when you hold yourself accountable for those things in just something like your diet, like you said, responsibility, people thrive in situations where you give them responsibility. And this has to do with a job too. Like when you, I mean, I remember I was fired up at, at that last job. I was three months into that last job at FW Web. Three months in, the manager of the New Haven uh, warehouse and store, he ended up getting another job. Uh, and guess what? Trial by fire. You know, I was thrown into his role where I had to learn things very quickly. And I, I appreciated it. Number one, it, it fired me up. Looking back on it, I was like, man, did they really get one off by not paying me what they were paying the last guy? And I was like <laughs> doing like equally the same work. But you know, that type of stuff happens in, in the military. Like when people are given responsibility, normally when you're given responsibility, especially a huge one, it makes you feel good. There's an accomplishment oh, yeah. to it. Oh my God, somebody trusted me to do this, you know, to accomplish a goal. And so when you do that on your own and when you do the hard things, when you get, you know, get the steps in, you know, when you go for that run, when you, you know, track your food, eat a little bit less, when you take that control, you know, of yourself, when you do, when you're able to do that, you're able to do it in other things. Like that's the thing. You're able to do it. Like when the hard thing comes up at work, you're already prepared for it. You prepared yourself for it up here by making yourself, you know, be sound in mind and body. You're only setting yourself up for when the hard things happen to you in real life. Yeah. Exactly. I couldn't say it better. So I think um, you've done a great job carrying this so far. You're, <laughs> you're, you're so well-spoken and, and your energy is alive. I, if anyone's not following you, uh, I don't, I don't have a TikTok, but, but you have a whole, you have a whole fiery page. I, I've seen videos here and there and it's just awesome. You just get inspired watching them. So I think anyone with a TikTok should follow you. What do you have, Lombard Trucking on there? Yeah, everywhere. You can find me anywhere at Lombard Trucking, at L-O-M-B-A-R-D. It's like the trophy without the I. Um, oh, like yeah. I said, you know, they used to be Lombardos, but they, uh, you know, they dropped the O uh, upon coming to the U.S. Uh, so, you know, for 
racial tensions or whatever. <laughs> so what's next for you, Mike? You're uh, you're getting into to oversize RGN. Uh, where do you where do you see yourself going? What do you I mean? What do you want to do in the next five to ten years? You know, it, it's it's crazy because you know part of me wants to say anything, but like magic wand or like as the plan goes, what I would like to do ideally is still is to you know pay homage and kind of tip the cat to my family and and become a business that is involved with kind of doing maybe something similar to what they did. So like I personally, I love being OTR. But like, is is it the career? For, you know, do I want to do that for the next thirty years? If I was a single guy and never wanted to get ma- be married and have kids, I absolutely would. So ideally, what would be next is continuing to network with people, learning, learning about the region where I live, learning about commodities that are moving throughout the Texas area, and I would like to eventually become like a, a regional carrier that's moving commodities throughout. You know, throughout. The, the Texas or the Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, like the, the region. I, I would love to become like a regional carrier um, or, but like, if we're really talking long-term, like I would love to like a dream of mine, if I could be the owner, what ma- magic wand, if I was all of a sudden CEO of Werner, I'd make Werner the, the greatest fucking company that, you know, uh, trucking's ever seen. I would do everything to try to bring back what, even though my, you know, my old uh, family's company was union, I would do everything to try to provide wages and benefits and training and everything for that size company. So that's like big dreams types of stuff. And it's possible right now the economy's tough, but ideally if I can somehow get myself into becoming a regional carrier, that's, you know, respected, um, you know, I can hire people and give them good jobs that they'll take pride in that, you know, that would be the, the ideal thing to do. You know, whether it be moving something like potable water or if it was moving fuel or if it's moving brick. I mean, there's a lot of brick and stuff. There's a lot of stuff that's manufactured in Texas. There's a lot of stuff that comes out of the port of Galveston. Um, that that would be the the way to go. Um, I'm somebody who like if like when it comes to management, um, when I think about management now, if I had to go to like a if I had to go to like a retail store, like, you know, something in a mall and I was the manager of employees. I don't know. I'd, I don't know if I could do that job. But I know that I could be in management. Um, you know, I like I know that I could be in management, but it would mean more to me. And I want to be in management if it's my own thing, because if my name's on the line, I want to make sure that the guys who do work for me are, you know, absolutely taken care of and are going out there and being a representation of me. So if I could grow, grow into be, you know, a, a regional type carrier or a really good, you know, fleet owner throughout the Texas region. That would be great for right now. I mean, it's day by day, brick by brick. You know, I am, you know, very appreciative of the situation I have here at Warren. Um, they have a great setup. You know, you it's possible to grow a fleet here, um, but I don't know if that's the style of business I necessarily want to run, especially given, you know, it is like strictly over the road. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I'm grateful for what they have to offer, especially for. Um, owner operators they have a system set up for guys to win and right now in the general economy uh, you know freight is slow um, you know there, there's not a lot of freight moving a lot, everyone the entire industry maybe not so much on your front but for the most part in a lot of areas of freight uh, everybody's hesitant luckily for me agriculture is really not uh, a lot of that's still staying kind of steady so it's just with right now it's cash flowing learning 
growing, staying open, meeting people. And hopefully within the next five years, you know, we can, you know, we can be looking at, you know, having a decent size company. I'd also though, at the, at the same time, I'm very much looking to get some more certifications, get some more training on the, on the fitness side of things. I would love to, uh, I would love to grow that. Uh, there's a lot of people who offer health and fitness stuff, um, for truckers. I, I, I met uh, a woman who do, has, has a yoga program at, I met her at the mid America truck show. There's another gentleman I plan on having on my, he has a company called supply chain fitness. I plan on having him on my show. There's a lot of people who want to help drivers in health and fitness, and this isn't a knock on them, but not a lot of them have done the job or are drivers. Yeah. So I feel like if I can, if I'm doing the job with them, um, and they know, and like people can see that because people need to see something that they're related to. So I would ideally really love to grow a, a, a kind of a wellness or fitness side uh, of things specific to drivers, because obviously it's not just like anybody who goes home every night It involves cooking your food, going grocery shopping, where you can grocery shop with a truck and just like, you know, helping guys out on, on that front. So growing a, a style of business that goes in that direction also would be something something that I'm trying to lock down. And I've been talking to some uh, personal trainers on, you know, getting certifications on their stuff and moving forward with that. Yeah, that's awesome. I know, I know we've uh, offline, we've talked a little, a little bit about how we can help one another out. And you've got the attitude, you've got everything going for you. I think you just keep keep working at it. And uh, we'll put something together eventually to work together. And and I know, I know, I think what you said there, I'm not going to beat this up because I think you said it best. When you, when you attach your name to something, your reputation's on the line. And I know a guy like you or a guy like Dom, who is, who is uh, a business partner with you and advisor to you. Um, you guys put, putting your name on the side of the truck means something. It means a lot of things. And, um, I know you'll make it happen. So I'm fired up for you. I want to thank you for your time coming on today. And, uh, for anyone that's looking to find you, Mike has the best content, by the way, he has the best trucking content. If we do this audio only, I just want everyone to know he's recording in the back of his Peterbilt right now. And, and he's not just some schmuck that uh, gets to come home every night. I mean, the guy's out there, he's doing the work. So if people want to find you, where can they find you? Yeah, find me everywhere at Lombard Trucking. That's on Instagram, uh, on TikTok. That's also on Twitter, uh, mm -hmm. for sure. We yeah, we love Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. I mean, my, my name is just Michael Anthony Lombard. It's got my full name. Feel free to shoot me a friend request. Drop drop me a DM. Uh, I'm on YouTube as well. You you know just search you know Lombard Trucking on YouTube and you'll you'll find my uh, channel as well as Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcast. Feel free to feel free to listen and, you know, and if anybody's got any questions about anything, like it's, but even, even if it's, if it's just about life, whatever, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm here to talk with everybody. I want to thank you for having me on. Uh, like I said, it, it, for us to win, having these conversations and pumping this type, these types of conversations out there is what matters. Um, and, and especially when it comes to branding, um, your, the title of your show says it all. Um, I say it too. God bless the Midwest. Um, like I said, people should take That's pride. Right. In, people should take pride in, in the Midwest, being from there, wherever it may be, Ohio, Iowa. I know that there's an upper Midwest and a regular Midwest. I, I don't know if there's <laughs> any sort of regional. I, I know Ohio and Michigan, you know, they, they have their college rivalries and stuff. But no matter what, like, you, you know, you guys, uh, 
there's a lot going on there. There's a lot to be, you know, proud of. Uh, it's just, you know, put that, put that energy out there into the internet, put out that Midwest nationalism for, for people to see uh, and for people to know. So that way they can come in and work these jobs that are needed and build the shit that makes our country great. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just plug you one more time. If anyone is out there, whether you're a driver, whether you're an average Joe, uh, you're working in a manufacturing shop, whatever it is, and you need help with your health and fitness. I can't say enough good things about what Mike is doing. Um, he's on the road doing his regular job and doing this also. I think it, it proves his credibility and his work ethic. So just reach out to him. He's doing some amazing stuff. There's an awesome group of us that have gotten together. And uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. I, Thanks a ton, Mike, and I think this is a really good one. I hope people enjoy it. Yeah, me too, man. Thanks again. Glad to be here, and we'll, we'll, we'll do it again soon. All right. Thank you, Mike.